Last week I employed a different method of teaching than my usual narrative style. I used a point-by-point defense of my suggestion that chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians is not meant to be read as a textbook case for the discipline of sinners in today's church. But rather, it is an ad hoc case, a unique and special situation Paul is dealing with. And that the greater truth of 1 Corinthians chapter 5 to be discovered has very little to do with church discipline and everything to do with Paul's greater theology, the theology of the cross. And how as individuals and as a community of self-professed followers of Jesus Christ, we are to be living out that following. So I hope you're okay with that method because I'm going to use it again today. Because we are going to tackle this very, very challenging verse. I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. But before we get into this, it is imperative that we understand that what I'm going to teach today is connected to what I taught last week. It builds on what we looked at last week. Unfortunately, we don't have time for me to do a review of last week's teaching and then get into this week's teaching. So, I want to encourage you, if you weren't here, take the time to listen to last week's teaching. Or, it will come out tomorrow or Tuesday in written form and spend some time with it. It will help fill in the blanks and the questions that will arise today if you missed last week's teaching. I will make one quick review, however. The most significant point I made last week is that Paul's sole purpose in removing this man from the community was redemptive. It was not intended to be punitive. It was not intended to be punishing for punishing sake alone. It was intended to be restorative, redeeming, and ultimately transforming. See, that is at the heart of Paul's greatest theology. It is very important that we learn to read Paul in light of his greater theology and not allow for his sometimes very challenging words to diminish his understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. His understanding of Christianity is one that it is about a God who loves us all so much that he died for us even while we were yet sinners. And in this self-sacrificial death, we discover God's real power to save and transform lives. And you know, what has hit me so much more about God's power this week is that if he's the creator of this universe, and if therefore his creative power is even more powerful than that unprecedented, massive storm that wreaked hell on this country. Despite having that kind of power, he does it. We have got to redefine power the way Paul defined it. As I watched that storm, especially those images that they would show from space, And I'm just like, whoa, whoa, if you can do that, why, why did you do this? This is power. And this is Paul's theology. 
So, if this is Paul's theology, why does verse 5 often get pointed to as evidence that Paul was lobbying for physical suffering and death of this man, and by extension, anyone else, because of a sinful lifestyle? Now, I actually don't have the answer to that question. I suppose we'll have to look into our own hearts to get the answer to that question, why we do that. I don't know why people insist on reading into Paul a form of punishing and transactional Christianity that he does not defend. I don't know. But I do have my reasons for defending this verse as not, not teaching that Paul was lobbying for physical suffering and death for this guy. Number one, it's grammatically complicated. Now, obviously I'm not a Greek scholar, so what I'm about to relate to you is a pretty substantial reduction of a very, very complicated argument, but I'll do my best. The purpose of the handing over or the delivering, depending on what translation you use, it might say handing over, it might say deliver. The purpose of this is the salvation of the man, not his destruction. Okay? In the Greek, scholars argue that the salvation phrase may be saved and not the destruction phrase is what qualifies the verb to deliver. Okay? So here, so the destruction phrase then becomes the anticipated result but not the purpose of what Paul is doing. This is a literal rendering of the Greek, which actually the New American Standard has pretty close. To hand him over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh in order that the spirit might be saved on the day of the Lord. Okay? Hand him over so that the spirit might be saved. Okay, number one. It's complicated, grammatically. That leads to number two. How is death redemptive? So, if, if, in fact, Paul's purpose is the man's salvation. How does death accomplish that? You have to really stretch some rather orthodox Christian teaching to come up with a viable answer for that question. Okay? And see, that's my point. Now, sure, there are some Christians, there are definitely Christians who believe in a possible second chance type scenario. Think purgatory. Okay? And there are also Christians who question when we do have our last chance to be saved. Right? Not all Christians think the second we breathe our last hair on earth that our chances at being saved are over. However, those folks that tend to support this longer period of grace are not reading this verse that we're on as being about physical suffering and death. Okay? It tends to be people that think the second we breathe our, our last here, that's it, we can't be saved. But then they also want this verse to be about the death of the person. You, how do you, how, you can't have those two theologies at the same time. Do you see what I mean? Because how could death then be redemptive if death is the last chance we have? Okay. Number three. It is not consistent with the scripture used to support their view. <clears throat> People like to reference a few different scriptures 
to support their view that Paul had physical suffering and death in mind for this man. They like to point to Job. Okay? But here's the problem with that. Job was not being punished. Satan just asked for permission to sift him. So there's no connection there. There's no support in using that. Other people like to point to Paul's own thorn in his flesh, which he attributed to Satan. Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was giving a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan, to torment me. But again, this is not being punished. This is just actually Satan's devices being used to secure God's purposes. And that's going to come up later. Others like to point to the very, very bizarre story of Ananias and Sapphira. This is that story we find in Acts where they withheld money, it seems, from God and they died because of it. Okay, it might seem to suggest punishment and death as a form of punishment, but in that story there's no ultimate salvation in view, as there is here in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And finally, people like to even point to this from 1 Corinthians. So there was abuses going on at the communion table, and Paul said, well, that's why some of you are sick, weak, and a number have died. However, again, there's no correlation between this and what Paul's talking about in chapter 5. Fee can help us understand that. There, chapter 11, Paul is making a judgment after the fact as it were. Indeed, after two facts. Number one, they're destroying the Lord's table. And number two, some of them are sickly or even died. Paul, by inspiration of the Spirit, prophetically tells them these two facts are related in a consequential way. But that is far from excommunicating for the very purpose that the man might suffer physically unto death. Okay? (coughs) Number four. It contradicts Paul's own doctrine. To read that verse this way. In chapter 15 of this letter that we're on, and we'll get to that eventually in like 2016. (laughs) Paul writes an entire thesis defending his doctrine of bodily resurrection from the dead. Bodily. So how could he here, in chapter 5, defend the opposite? That the body is of no consequence and therefore can be destroyed as long as the spirit is saved. That's the exact position these arrogant Corinthians have. Remember, we looked at this last week. The issue here is not just that the guy is committing a sin so grotesque that a sexually tolerant society doesn't tolerate it, but more what has Paul so furious is that some of the arrogant Corinthian Christians are actually justifying it because they are free in Christ to do whatever they want to do. And the body is of no consequence. Paul would not be supporting that idea by suggesting here the body and spirit are separate. Paul was not a dualist. That's what was so challenging about his theology to this Hellenistic world. They were all dualists. Okay. Number five. This is classic Pauline imagery that he's using. Classic. Granted, the juxtaposition of the words flesh and spirit 
with destruction and salvation may at first confuse us, but the metaphor is classic Paul. He often uses the idea of flesh being the whole man who is separate from God, and spirit being the whole man who is united with God. We saw this in chapter 3 when we were there. And I, brethren, could not speak to you as spiritual men, but as to men of the flesh. Witherington comments on this. More likely, Paul refers in this way to the destruction of the sinful inclinations of his brother. Flesh often refers in Paul's letters to human sinful inclinations. So the flesh here, then, probably speaks to the very same idea. Paul wants the fleshly nature of the man destroyed, so the spiritual man, nature of the man, can take over. And this shouldn't surprise us. If we read Paul, this is imagery we're used to. Galatians. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. We haven't killed ourselves. Right? And he wrote this to the Thessalonians. I mean the Romans. For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions, which were aroused by the law, were working the members of our body to bear fruit of death. But now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound. The sinful passions. The flesh. So that we serve in newness of the spirit and not in oldness of the letter. See? Again, the person didn't die. This is classic Pauline imagery. So, I know some might argue, well, why would Satan want to destroy the sinful inclinations of the flesh? Doesn't that go against Satan's purposes? Great point. So i got two things to say. One, this is probably not an anthropomorphic statement. This is Paul probably not saying we're going to give him to that guy with the red suit and the pitchfork and the horns. This has more to do with that part of the world that we talk about that is under Satan's domain. Right? So he's going to be out there, alone, separate from the support and love of his Christian community, and he's going to suffer all these hardships on his own, and hopefully that's going to drive him back to community. But number two, even if you insist that this is an anthropomorphic type metaphor, okay, fine. Scripture is filled with stories of Satan doing things that, in the end, go against what Satan wanted to happen. We already talked about Job. How did that turn out for Satan? And the biggest one of all? I'm pretty sure if he stopped this through, maybe he would have stopped the whole thing. Okay, number six. I do. Number six. Early church fathers taught this way. Origen, Chrysostom, Theodore of Antioch, all understood this verse with the imagery that flesh had to do with the man's sinful nature and spirit had to do with the man's redeemed nature. And finally, and perhaps most importantly, so I'm sorry if I sort of bored you with those six things that if they didn't mean a lot to you, I'm sorry, but I think reading Paul is important. And I think reading Paul properly is important. And this chapter 5 is an enormous chapter. And I find something that disturbs me a lot, and it disturbs me a lot because I used to do it. To use this beautiful book in this, with this, the most beautiful story ever told, and use it to destroy people's lives, 
is greatly offensive to me. First Corinthians chapter 5 is always being used to destroy people's lives when they, people don't understand Paul. So I wanted to use those first six to give you all things to think about and rethink how you read Paul and maybe talk to your friends about how they read Paul. But number seven is the most important anyway. This is against Paul's own theology, which I hinted to. Now, some people will argue that just because we today find the idea of someone being punished to death for their sins repulsive, we can't dismiss Paul's teachings. Well, I agree with that statement 100%. We should be very careful using contemporary sensibilities when we are evaluating ancient scripture. But I'm not using contemporary sensibilities. I'm using Paul's own theology. Consider what Paul wrote to the Galatians. Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, that would include a guy sleeping with a stepmom, any trespass, you who are spiritual, oh, as opposed to fleshly, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. And here's what Paul wrote to the Thessalonians. If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that person and do not associate with him so that he will be put to shame. Yet do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Does this sound like a guy bent on the suffering and death of sinners? Or does it sound like someone who desires genuine repentance and authentic restoration? I think it sounds like a guy who knew what he wrote to the Romans was true. Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? The kindness of God. I read this great article recently. It's a true story about, excuse me, this guy named Julio Diaz. He's a social worker in New York City. And he has a, well, he did probably before this hurricane. Probably can't do it right now. But he, had, he has a uh, habit, for lack of a better word. That he lives in the Bronx, and on his way home, he would always get off the train one stop before his home stop. Because there's a diner that he liked to eat dinner. One night, he got off the train, the platform was empty, and a young man came up to him with a knife. Demanded his money. So Julio came to his wallet. The young man started to walk away, and Julio said, hey, you forgot something. And the young man turned around, and Julio said, if you're going to spend the night robbing people, you're going to need my jacket, because your jacket's not going to be warm enough. The young man just looked at him, like, all right, you're crazy, better than I am. And, and uh, Julio said, listen, if you're willing to risk your freedom for my money, you must really need it. I just got off the train because I'm going to go have some dinner. Do you want to come with me? This young man was so taken aback by this, he actually agreed to go with Julio to the diner. So they're sitting there, they're eating. Everyone knows Julio because he's there four times a week. Everyone's coming out to say hi to him, even the dishwashers came out. 
So the young guy says, what, do you own this place? He said, no. He said, well, why are you talking to all these people? You're talking to the dishwashers. And Julio said, yeah, because I was taught that you should be kind to everybody. This young man looked at him and said, I've heard stuff like that, but I've never, ever seen it. No wonder he's up on the platform robbing people, right? So the meal ended. Check came, and Julio said, I'd love to buy your dinner, but <laughs> you've got my money. <laughs> <laughs> and um, the young guy took his wallet, handed it right back to him. Julio paid for dinner, handed him a $20 bill. He said, listen, do me a favor. Just put your knife on the table before you leave. He put his knife on the table, and he walked Listen, I know in our world, kindness like that, more often than I'll probably get you killed. I get it. I get why in our kingdoms we hate. I get why we have weapons. I get it. Trust me. But I'm a Christian for one reason. Because I don't believe in our world. I believe in a different world. And if we're Christians, why are we so caught up in our world? This book says here, love wins, not hate. Kindness will win. Maybe not when you're using it, but it will win. Like that little girl in Lebanon. She didn't get her house back. She got something bigger. A bigger story. It's going to be here at the end. Love wins. See, Second Thessalonians can really help us understand Paul better. His intent is always restoration. Notice the tension between do not associate, yet do not regard him as an enemy. If this verse alone doesn't make modern Americans stop misreading Paul, then, then nothing will. We read, do not associate, oh, build our walls, have nothing to do with, hate us, them. <laughs> do not regard him as an it's This is not what we think it means. Remember, we looked at this last week. What worked in that culture? Shame. Shame worked in that culture. Not hatred, not bitterness, not have nothing to do with. Paul is not looking for punitive destruction. He is praying that the shame of this man being sent out will cause the man to come back in with a changed mind. His imagery is the same in Corinthians. It's as if Paul is saying, listen, so that this guy's sinful self will die and his spiritual self will live, cast him out. But it's not a vengeful thing. It's not a mean thing. It's not punitive. It's as Bailey writes, so that the shock may lead him to repentance. It's his only hope. And I talked about last week why shame doesn't work in our culture anymore. And if we really want to follow Paul's intent, we'll find a different way to discipline has an idea. Paul's theology is never, never 
that the one who sins within the Christian community should be so punished in the present age that he lies beyond the redemptive, restorative love of that community. The ultimate reason for such discipline is remedial, not judgmental. For such to take place, here's the key. One needs an especially loving, redemptive community where the true power of the Lord Jesus Christ, self-sacrificial living, is a regular part of corporate life. Isn't it interesting that where black and white, church discipline and excommunication happens by just a few people in the church is often part of a community that is not about love, redemption, and self-sacrificial love. See, this is Paul's point. Community. Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, listen, this guy's sin is horrible. He's also saying, and those of you Christians who are supporting it with some twisted doctrine of freedom in Christ and or dualism are way outside of God's intent for you. But Paul continues. And those of you who are unwilling to get involved, and those of you who think, I, Paul, am going to come there and take care of this, you're not any better. Chapter 5 of verse Corinthians was not meant so we could establish government committees in the church to deal with community problems. Communities deal with community problems. And this is what Paul is so angry about. Learn what it means to love God and love others. And if you really care about this guy, why don't you do something about it instead of write me letters and ask me to get involved? We have been redeemed by God. All of us. We're being restored by God. And that redemption and that restoration happening in our lives is through His grace because He loves us. That's the story. It's the whole story. Is that this? Restoration. Because it needs to be restored. The earth doesn't work anymore. We don't work anymore. And God wants to restore us. We should be living our lives self-sacrificially engaging our brothers and sisters so that they too will know the redemptive, restorative work of Jesus Christ in their lives. May God help us all.